At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be in the studio today with Lauren Katz-Smith. And Lauren is the producer and general counsel for History Making Productions uh, here in Philadelphia. They are um, in the very early stages of development for a film that's going to be covering the history of women in the Philadelphia area who have had a, a wonderful impact on our city. So um, welcome to the show, Lauren. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. As I always do on my show, we're going to start out talking a little bit about your um, your background and, and get a sense of where you came from and what led you to the position that you have today. So talk a little bit about your years growing up in Mount Airy, uh, which is an area just outside of Philadelphia. So Mount Airy is actually a part of Philadelphia. Yeah, well, you're right, it is. <laughs> it's northwest Philadelphia. Right. And um, I, I grew up there. Um, I was born in, uh, in Chestnut Hill, actually, and quickly my parents moved to Mount Airy into a home on a really small, um, beautiful street. And when my mom was about to have their third child, they felt they'd outgrown the house, so they moved next door to themselves to the house <laughs> next door. So we've been, uh, my parents are still there, and, um, you know, it's a great place to grow up. Yeah. We, you know, you were the oldest of four, I understand, and we should mention that your dad, uh, Sam Katz, it was actually uh, a politician in the Philadelphia area. Many people probably know him. So that's a little bit different um, growing up, having that type of a parent, you know, a little bit hope, high profile. Talk a little bit about that and, and how that affected you growing up. Um, so yeah, my dad ran for public office the first time in 1990, and I was uh, 10 years old. And then he ran again in um, 1993-94 for governor of Pennsylvania. And then again when I was 18 in 1999 and for his fourth run for, for mayor in 2003. I was 20, 22, 23. So um, he's a big part of our lives, but honestly, I... I didn't know differently, so it's just my dad. I, right. I don't know. I, right. The opportunities that his runs afforded me were are really amazing. I think back on it now and how much exposure I had to different neighborhoods and different people, um, and just growing up in a, an environment like that when when a campaign was happening. Yeah, I learned a lot. I picked up a lot. So, you know, it's a little different, unusual way to grow up, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you know, not always easy for sure, but but again, it was just my dad and my my parents never threw us in the limelight. I, I never felt that way. And if we wanted to come to a fundraiser or an event, we could. If we mm -hmm. didn't, we never had to. Right. Um, There's very little asked of me, honestly. Yeah. And uh, it was it was interesting. 
but again, not, not easy. Always. Not easy. Right. I, I would imagine, I mean, it is educational for you because, you know, your dad was certainly involved in, in things that were taking place in the city, and not a lot of kids get exposure to that. But then again, you're picking up the newspaper and reading stories about your family. Yeah, exactly. And um, my mom, for a while, stopped reading the local newspapers. <laughs> it's not it's not easy to read about, no. you know, somebody criticizing your dad. And I became probably very protective of him at an early age. I bet. Um, and wary of journalists, yeah. honestly. And um, to this day, there's some remnants of that that I'm working on. But <laughs> You uh, do have no fear of me. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But, um, yeah, I think that was the hardest part. And, and seeing him lose was hard, too, because I knew how much he wanted to to be the mayor um that was his dream and so it was hard to see your parent not get what they wanted yeah but i i can honestly say that it it's amazing to watch someone who you admire that much both my parents just pick up and try again Mm -hmm. after having you know not succeeded and um i think that's something i take with me yeah yeah, that's true. That's really the wonderful lesson was that, you know, um, to, to not give up. And, and it's never too late, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, putting yourself out there, putting your ideas out there, exposing yourself to criticism in this city is not an easy thing to do. I think uh, we all make it hard for people to run for office here. And maybe that's nationally, but definitely here. And so I really admire anyone who runs for public office, and that's another lesson I take with me. No matter how much I might disagree, you know, I just I think it's so amazing when people do that, and I always vote, and yeah. I just I think it's really important. Yeah, it is important, and you're right. You have to be thick-skinned, yeah. right? Um, and how about your mom? What did your mom did your mom work outside of the house? So my mom was a school psychologist and stopped working uh, when I was born. My parents got married pretty young. They got married when they were only 22 years old and didn't have me until their early 30s. So they were um, working in the city for that that decade. And um, she stopped working when I was born as, you know, for for money. She, <laughs> But she worked, as far as I'm concerned, my entire childhood. Right. Um, right. She's really involved in our community and our synagogue in all the schools, and um, I remember my mom being out most nights of the week going to meetings, so she was definitely engaged, just um, not in a traditional yeah. work environment. Yeah, and that's that's a wonderful example for children. You're, you're the oldest of four. Are they boys, girls? Who do you have? So I'm the oldest, and I have a brother who's um, a little less, less than two years younger than me, a sister who's five years younger, and the youngest is a boy. He's um, eight years younger than me. Okay. Did anybody else follow in, in Dad's footsteps? In terms of politics, you yes. mean? Yes. Um, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess to be determined. The youngest right. in our family is in the military. He's in, in the Air Force. And I could see someday him stepping up and doing something similar to my dad. I, I could see that. They're very similar in, yeah. in certain ways. So. Okay. That'll be fun to watch. <laughs> um, t- talk a little bit about your years at Tufts and um, what types of activities you were involved in outside of your academics there. Sure. So um, I went to college in, in Boston at Tufts, and um, I loved it. I mean, Boston's an amazing city, and... Uh, I studied international relations. I was really interested in language and um, culture, and um, most of the classes I took were um, about Latin America, and I I started studying Spanish and became really interested in um, Latin American history and politics and arts, and um, 
I studied abroad when I was in college in Ecuador, which was an incredible opportunity. Wow. And um, you know, Tufts is a terrific place to go to college. And um, I guess as far as activities I was involved in, um, most of my time was spent with the theater group. I didn't grow up uh, involved in theater at all. I was a soccer player and oh. um, and did arts at Moore College of Arts on the weekends, but I never was involved in plays. I don't know what compelled me, but I tried out for a children's theater group. It was a volunteer group. We would go to area schools and hospitals and libraries and perform original plays. And oh, nice. we would raise money through those plays for different charities. And it was just an amazing, amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. I definitely found a different side of myself to yeah. that. Well, you clearly have, um, you know, you went to law school, and we'll talk about that, but you clearly have a creative side. Here you are, you know, kind of come full circle, and you're um, working with a production studio. So that was ingrained in you, I guess. I think so, but I, I think more than anything else that um, being part of that group really brought me out of my shell a lot. I was... I'm not going to say I was shy because I wasn't shy, but I was a pretty private person and mm -hmm. a little bit serious, and um, that just sort of brought out this sort of childlike energy in me that was was really well served. And um, I think, yes, you're right. The creative side of my brain was ignited in a new way, and yeah. um, being able to be on a stage and speak to a group was not something I'd really ever done before. Yeah. Do you think that that, you know, that kind of guardedness, you know, being private and guarding yourself came from growing up with dad in the spotlight? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's a little bit of who I am and yeah. but but yeah, no, I do think that um that that had probably a lot yeah. to do with. Yeah. That's typical. I mean, I guess that that makes sense. So, um when and how did you decide, you know, that you were going to go to law school and become an attorney? And, and was there a mentor in your life, somebody that kind of, um, you know, influenced you in that way to do that? Well, it's sort of a long story, but I'll try to, I'll try to cut to the chase. We have plenty of time. Okay. <laughs> um, I graduated from Tufts, came back to Philadelphia and worked on my dad's mayoral campaign. And, um, and then after he, he didn't win, I... I traveled a little bit and then decided to move to New York. And I was um, determined to work in international public health uh, research. That's what I wanted to do. I, I imagined I would end up with a PhD in epidemiology and I would um, run studies around the world of you know, women's reproductive awesome. health. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It was, that was my dream. So yeah. I, I got a job at a, a wonderful organization called the Population Council, which is a leader in that type of research. They do demographic research all over the world. And I worked for the Reproductive Health Group. Um, and I was working under three different researchers, three different women who were conducting interesting trials uh, for different um, reproductive health technologies around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, the organization paid for me to start a master's degree at Columbia in um, in epidemiology, and I started that, and I worked in this job, and it was not right. I just uh, wasn't right. Yeah. And I could feel it, and now I'm not sure I could articulate exactly what wasn't right. right. But um, what really got me excited when I was there was this very particular study about the informed consent process in one of our trials, which is inherently a legal bioethics issue about how you can um, work with a population and engage them in research like this when you know they may not totally understand 
what's going on because of language barriers and cultural barriers, and how, what are the ethical implications of that, mm. that work? It's such important work, but there is this other side. Yes. And um, that's what made me the most excited about what I was doing, was learning about that and thinking about it. And so that really that experience led me to take a turn and apply to law school. And you went to Drexel, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, I have a son there. He's a freshman. So uh, I, I very much like that school and the environment and the philosophy of the co-op and, and all of that good stuff. Um, so tell me, what, what were some of the things you were involved in while you were at Drexel? So I came back to Philadelphia. I was planning to stay in New York for law school, but um, Drexel was starting this new program. And I just really loved the idea of being part of this new venture, mm -hmm. and um, they were promoting a health law concentration, which I thought would be a good fit for me. Um, and I went for it, and it was you know it's a ris it was risky because the school hadn't been accredited yet. It, you have to be in operation for a certain number of months before the ABA accredits a law school. So there was a, a piece of it that was risky, but the school was incredibly generous with that first class. So I got a full ride to Drexel Law School and. With that, armed with that, and this excitement about the new approach it felt they were taking, um, I came back to Philadelphia. And I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I'm not practicing law in a very traditional sense now, but um, I loved Drexel. I think it's run by the most amazing people. Uh, my experience there was just terrific. And um, Again, not being saddled with debt from law school means mm -hmm. that I've been able to make choices that are not um, purely financial, and that's given me so much independence, um, and I just feel so grateful to Drexel. Yeah. Now, that's what, what year was that? So the first class we started in 2006. Okay. Yeah, so it hasn't been that long that they've, that they've been there. And how did you determine which area of law you wanted to practice? Um, well, I... I graduated in 2009 and um, did a clerkship in federal court in New Jersey, which, again, was another incredible experience. And I worked for a senior judge, um, Judge Rodriguez, who you've mentioned mentors before, was an amazing mentor to me and just one of the kindest people. And um, I, I, loved, I loved that experience so much. And um, the professors at Drexel encouraged that very much and were really helpful to help me prepare to, to get a clerkship, an interview, excuse me. And um, so going from law school to a clerkship, the natural fit is litigation. It's um, what most people tend to do. And um, I didn't really question that. I just sort of went with the flow a little bit, I guess, yeah, and yeah. ended up in a um, general litigation department at Blank Rome and um, felt prepared for that because law school is more focused on uh, on litigation than on transactional work, and I definitely focused on my coursework was more litigation nature, yeah. um, and the clerkship for sure was incredible preparation for working in a big law firm. Big firm, yeah. Okay, we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be with Lauren Cat Smith, producer and general counsel for History Making Productions. We'll be right back. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. 
That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Hello? Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow, infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes, Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. This is Sue Rocco, and you're listening to Women to Watch. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest-growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, F-I-N-R-A, S-I-P-C. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? 
You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm sitting down today with Lauren Katz-Smith. And Lauren is the producer and general counsel for History Making Productions, which is a production company here in Philadelphia. Uh, They're working on several projects, but what kind of piqued my interest was a, a film that they are producing called Women of Philadelphia. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but I wanted to speak to Lauren a little bit about her time at Blank Room and what it was like to be a female attorney in a firm that size that um, historically, um, you know, was uh, run by men. Talk about those years a little bit and, and what it was like for you. So I was at Blank Room for two years and, um, you know, it's it was a mixed bag. I think that being a young woman in a litigation department isn't so unusual. There were a lot of young women I worked with. Um, I did a summer, uh, had a summer job during law school there in the second year, which is traditionally how people um, get positions in in law firms. And the class was maybe 30 people, and I would say it was 50-50 men and women. And many of those women came back and um, had permanent positions at Blank Rome. So you know, yes, most of the partners, um, or at least a, a majority, are are men um, in the litigation department and in the firm overall. Mm-hmm. So the issue seems to be retention, keeping women. And you know, I left. So <laughs> uh, in some ways, I feel like I I should have stayed because I should have fought for you know, the changes in the firm to make it possible and make it a, a great place for someone like me to work. Um, on the other hand, it wasn't the right fit in a, in a lot of ways, having nothing to do with women and men. Mm-hmm. But um, so, you know, I think about that sometimes. And I have to say that the um, head of the litigation department um, was in, a man and was an incredible mentor. I, I take with me every day some of the lessons in professionalism and preparation and just attitude I, that, that I observed and um, absorbed from him. And, you know, they were very good to me. They made as many concessions to try to make it work for me as possible. Mm-hmm. And I know not everybody has that experience, but I definitely did. So my husband um, runs a company with his father that's based in Vermont. That's where he's from. And when I was at Blank Rome, his father decided to retire. And so my husband stepped up into the the management leadership role. 
at his company. So we had a geographic issue. He yeah. needs to be in Vermont um, more than ever before that year, and it's for weeks at a time, being apart was a real strain. And the firm allowed me to go with him and work from Vermont when I needed to, which is unusual, and I would say really incredible. And um, so, I, you know, again, a mixed bag. But yes, it was hard to work in um, on teams that you know where I was always the youngest for sure, and then uh, you know usually the only woman, and yeah. that is hard. I think it was hard when I first started to get work because right. um, you know people are busy; they know who they know, and what's familiar is sometimes easier. So I think that that's a real challenge that young women entering firms can face: is trying to gain the respect of the people around them and to prove themselves worthy of getting work. Right. And um, you know, it took me a while, it took me a few months to start to start getting getting work. And then once I had it, I, I knew how hard I had to work in order to, to keep getting it. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, big law firm life is very difficult on personal in personal life. I worked I worked really a lot hard. Of hours. A lot of hours, yeah. And um, the hard part for me and uh, I think a lot of people feel this way and probably not just in law but no matter how many hours I was working, I never felt like I was doing enough. Yeah. And um, I didn't work as many hours as a lot of the other people that were at my level. Um, so, you know, I, I was trying to draw lines. I was trying to find balance. Mm -hmm. And um, again, the firm, while they wanted me to build more, were always really complimentary of the quality of the work, encouraging quantity, but, but never minimized the effort I was making. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point uh, you mentioned about it, putting in the hours, putting in the work, and trying to find that balance. And I think you're, you're correct. Across all industries, we all are trying to do that. Because the truth is, you could have 24 hours in a day, and it's still never enough time. Um, what were some of the things that you did outside of work to kind of decompress when you, you weren't sitting behind that desk in the office? Any skiing in Vermont? <laughs> no, I am not a skier. <laughs> um, you know, we tried to take a few vacations in those years that were a good break. Um, I, I honestly, that was a period of my life where I lost track of a lot of the things that I care about. Oh. That um, you know, not the things, not the people. So in my free time, I was reconnecting with people, with my husband, yeah. with my friends, with my family. Yeah. So it's not that I did nothing but work, certainly, but you know, the hobbies that I developed before and have come back to now, mm -hmm. um, they were on hold during that time. Yeah. And I think that's that's some of the sacrifice. Um, although, you know, I, I would try to read. That's one yeah. of the things I love to do. I read were you novels. reading briefs? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, I tried not to work home. I would yeah. stay late. And well, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that was a, a lesson, a very good life lesson, those couple of years. And you look back and you think, geez, you know, I really should have um, tried to pay attention more to the things that are a priority in my life. Absolutely. And I think um, the truth is that without that balance of, you know, you know the creative side of your brain or or the athletic movement oriented, you know, these are really big parts of, of me and of probably of other people. And when they go, when they shut down um, the way that I shut mine down a little bit, uh, I wasn't bringing my whole self 
to work, I wasn't truly expressing myself, and I don't think I was as good at my job. I don't think I was as happy as I could have been or as comfortable as I could have been. Um, and I do think that I, you know, the work suffered. So as hard as it is now when I'm very involved in something at my desk, if it's, at six, if it's six o'clock, you know, I know it's really important to me to have dinner with my husband or, or right. to go on a run or, or to go out in the community and do something fun. Yeah. I do it now because I can, mm -hmm. and I just I realize how much that matters to, to the work I'm doing. Yeah. So. It's funny to me that we have to kind of force ourselves to pull away from the work and do the things that we enjoy, um, rather than the opposite, you know, be doing the things we enjoy and force ourselves to go back to work. Yeah, you know, and some people, I, I like working. I, I love that feeling of the flow of having lots of work and being productive. Um, so sometimes, yeah, it is hard to stop, and, mm -hmm. um, and it definitely was back then. Yeah. It definitely yeah. was hard to stop. But there were um, people I worked with, both men and women, who I think were trying to model that as best they could. Mm -hmm. You know, the law firm, uh, the business in law firms is pretty tough, and to pick your head up for too long or, you know, it, you feel like you're sacrificing something. But, but there were people there who I was observing going home at five o'clock to be with their children yeah. and and you know then plugging back in later to finish whatever they were doing and there was definitely effort on the part of some of management and some people in high positions to accommodate that yeah. priority and I, I saw that around me and I think more of that would be amazing but and not just for children for people who don't have children who want to go outside or yeah. are taking care of parents or you know, just have other aspects of their life to pursue. So yeah, I think we're all trying. We, you know, yeah. we try every day to do that better. Um, we're going to take one last quick break, and then we will be back with Lauren Katz Smith, uh, producer and general counsel for History Making Productions. We'll be right back. Hello. Hi, Kelly. It's Sue. Are you and Joe going to the kids' game after school today? No, we are stuck in traffic again on our way to the hospital for Joe's IVIG infusion. As usual, we will be at the hospital all day and won't be home in time. This is really becoming a problem with our work and family commitments. Hey, my friend's son receives his infusions at home with Walgreens. You know they are not just a retail pharmacy. Walgreens has a national home infusion program. He used to miss school, but now the Walgreens nurses see him at home after school. Wow! Infusions in the comfort of our own home? Yes. Walgreens expert infusion nurses and pharmacists are available 24-7 to provide safe, one-on-one -on -one clinical support around your schedule. Talk to your doctor and call Walgreens Infusion Services at 877-974-4844 or go to womentowatch.net for complete details. We will, if we ever get out of this traffic, hearty har har. We can't wait to have these infusions at home with Walgreens. Thanks. Be well. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the City of Light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, 
or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Are you looking for assistance with your IT demands? Would you like to know that the people you hire have your best interest at heart? InSource is one of the region's most distinguished and fastest-growing technology firms in the Philadelphia area. Their only concern is to deliver your business long-term success to avoid reacting to daily crisis. Recognized as a top employer of IT consultants, they thrive on helping their clients exceed expectations. InSource delivers reliable and effective solutions to the technology needs of both small and large businesses as well as nonprofits and does so with the goals of your business in mind. With over a decade of recognized success, InSource provides its clients with both IT staffing needs as well as putting highly qualified project teams together. InSource is also a partner of ServiceNow, the fastest growing software company in the country. Contact InSource today at 610-592-0800 or visit their website at InSourceNow.com to find the quality help you need. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. When you are shopping, do you chuckle at the one-size-fits-all tags? Well, wealth management should not take a one-size-fits-all approach either. Companies offer different products and services for women, and they should. All women are different. Your plan should be as unique and personal as you are. So why are you still following your one-size-fits-all financial advisor? Financial advisor Liz Barker of RBC Wealth Management understands this. Her area of expertise is women in transition and being retirement ready. Call Liz Barker, financial advisor at RBC Wealth Management at 484-530-2806. Again, that number is 484-530-2806. Or visit her online at www.lizbarker.com to schedule your complimentary custom wealth management plan today. RBC Wealth Management, a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, SIPC. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Lauren Katz-Smith, and Lauren is the producer and general counsel for History Making Productions, which is a production uh, company just outside, well, actually in Philadelphia. Um, where am I? In Philadelphia, yes. And I'm so excited to talk to Lauren today about uh, the film that they are working on that will be covering the women of Philadelphia, uh, women who really had a, a large impact on 
where Philadelphia is today and some of the things that helped to shape it. And um, I guess the, my first question should be how you came to decide to, you know, leave Blank Roman and join your dad here um, at the production company and work on these films, these wonderful projects. Um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't one after the other. I left Blank Rome. Um, I was facing some health issues and made the decision to leave without a plan, which is a scary thing to do. <laughs> That's okay. And um, I spent a year doing some volunteer legal work with the ACLU, where I worked in law school. And um, this fall, so September of 2013, uh, the Women of Philadelphia Project was really getting off the ground. And I learned about the project and felt ready to take a pretty big leap away from, from legal work. And, uh, you know, my dad invited me and thought this might be a good fit. And why don't you come try it? And um, it was very, you know, light touch, just see how it goes. And, and I started in September and sort of Jumped in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your dad came um, to decide to do this particular film? So Nancy Moses, who used to be the director of the Atwater Kent Museum, now the Philadelphia History Museum, mm -hmm. came to see him. Uh, the Great Experiment, which is our feature um, documentary series about the history of Philadelphia, sort of Philadelphia History 101, mm -hmm. um, has already aired we're about to air our sixth episode, and Nancy had seen the episodes and, and knew my dad and came to talk to him about women's history. She's really passionate about women's history and thought some kind of um, an exhibition in a museum about women's history would, would make a lot of sense. And he said, well, we, we make films here, so if you want to make a film, I'd love, I'd love to do that with you. Yeah. And they partnered in, I think, the spring of 2013, uh, and set off to make this make this project, and um, you know it's probably changed a lot since those early days and what what they were envisioning. But that's how it got started. Um, she really brought it to us. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's something that's never been done before, right? Um, I think I in some of my research about the film and and you know the uh, the certain aspects of it that are being worked on. Um, there's a lot of stories out there that have never been told. Um, the women kind of behind the scenes of the men that were at the forefront, you know, in politics and, and um, you know, economics of the city. Can you talk about some of the, maybe one or two of the stories that have resonated with you about some of the women that whose stories have been uncovered? Sure. Well, I think that, um, yeah, it's important to note that no city has made a documentary film about the history of the city that focuses exclusively on the roles of women throughout history. And it's a real challenge to make um, a series like this because uh, so little of history has focused on women. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, you know, men, white men, uh, write and record history and typically about themselves. So <laughs> they like to write about themselves and their, yeah. their accomplishments. <laughs> and another really good way to think about it is, um, you know, in The Great Experiment, which is our feature, we certainly include stories about women and make an effort to do so, not just about women, but other, other groups too. You know, it's not a series about white men. But the lens of that camera is directed on the spheres of city life that were traditionally of interest to and um, 
dominated by men. Mm-hmm. So war, finance, uh, city planning, these are, and you know, more examples I could think of, just generally economy. But when you shift the lens a little bit and you look at sectors that were not necessarily male-dominated throughout history, you then start to uncover stories that matter, I would argue, just as much, but aren't in, in these areas. So mm-hmm. if you look at education, if you look at creativity in the arts, if you look at wellness and medicine, mm-hmm. um, and it's not to say, again, those stories aren't part of the feature, but they're not the main focus. And so what we're doing with women is we've turned the lens of the camera and we're looking at six aspects of life in the city today that matter to Philadelphians today and tracing their roots back in time and asking how women made that history and how they were affected by those spheres of life. And then what were the barriers in place socially, economically, politically that might have prevented women from rising and gaining recognition that they so often deserved and didn't get. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's really incredible to uncover these stories. You know, Lucretia Mott, who's probably arguably one of the most influential women in American history, comes from Philadelphia. She's one of the only women um, in the National Rotunda in Washington, D.C., who's featured and um, was a Quaker abolitionist and fought for women's rights. She just an incredible role model, an incredible leader, and um, an incredible woman. And I had never heard of her. And I think... Nor did I. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people have no idea who she is and what an influence she was in Philadelphia. So it's, it's very exciting for me to be part of this. You know, and Lucretia Mott is one of the easiest to uncover. There are books about her. She's been studied. She's um, in history. But the really the unknown women, uh, finding those stories is going to be and has been um, a real... A, a really exciting endeavor. And what are some of the steps that you take to uncover these stories, especially the ones that were not documented? What, what types of things do you do to uncover those? So far, we're, we're in pre-production now, which um, includes all of the research. So we have a team of researchers who work with us, and um, they're excavating. They're, they're trying to uncover Uncovering. stories. And uh, the two, two episodes have, have been worked up, and the research has been... Um, completed, and that's in education and in crime. One of our episodes is going to be about about crime committed against women, women who have committed crimes, and the criminal justice system throughout time, and okay. how laws uh, have changed as times have changed. What was illegal for women at one point became considered legal, and, and how that happens, and how that changes lives for women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they dig in. They go to the archives at the Historical Society. They go to the library company. They find letters and journals. They find small tidbits in a secondary source that they then, you know, dig down and drill down and try to find more about that woman. Um, There's incredible resources in this city. The archives at the Historical Society are unbelievable. They're amazing. Yeah. That's so fun. (laughs) I think I'd like to do that part-time when I'm not doing this. I really do. I think that's so cool. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the film, when you're anticipating it is going to air, where it's going to air, you know, where people can find out about it. So we're in pre-production now, which I mentioned. And again, that's our our focus now is fundraising for the project and then uh, generating all the intellectual content that we'll need to produce six episodes. Each episode will be about 30 minutes long, 
And each episode is dedicated to a sector of city life that is, as I said, important to Philadelphians today. So everyone should find themselves in these these films, should find the issues that they care about mm -hmm. in these films. We're really dedicated to that. And um, pre-production will probably last an, about a year. So we hope to be able to start production, which is on-camera interviewing, digging up uh, visuals from the archives, and doing some uh, reenactment shooting. That will um, begin probably in the fall of 20. 14 or the winter of 2015 depending on how oh, okay how well, we that's do with not too late yeah that's not too far from here we're hoping to broadcast um, plan to broadcast in January of 2016 okay so it's a long process there's a lot of work to be done it does mm -hmm. take that much time but we've also um, we anticipate that in 2016 there's going to be a woman running for president of a major political party and the attention of the country is going to be focused on women and women in power and um, so we're really excited to Perfect be coinciding timing. with that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we can only hope. <laughs> right, so this whole pre-production is, is basic, it's, it's research and it's fundraising. Yes. Um, funding a film like this is very difficult. We're, we're a small company and we're essentially a nonprofit. We um, fund all of our films through, through generous donations from family foundations, individuals, and some corporate corporate giving. And what's amazing about women is how much support it's already gotten from Corporate Philadelphia, our presenting sponsor, um, Independence Blue Cross, and our national leadership sponsor called Fearless Women, who's um, Kathy Greenberg is an inspirational coach and um, a business mentor. These are, they have each committed $200,000 to our project. And, you know, that gets us gets us going. We have uh, a few family foundations who have also uh, donated, but we still have a lot of money to raise, and um, it's tough. It's tough to yeah. raise money. I, I think it'll come. I just, again, I think it is a really, um, it's a compelling topic, and it's uh, timely, and one of the questions it raises for me is, I, I just want to know your thoughts on why do you think now we are at a time where women are being focused on uh, a great deal um, as resources for, you know, moving up the corporate ladder and, and coming into their own politically. Um, there seems to be a really positive support going on for women. Why do you think it's happening today? Um, you know, I don't know why today, and I'm not actually convinced that this is so new. I have a feeling that there's probably been this kind of um, mo mobilization and motivation in the past. I have a feeling that we're we're probably repeating ourselves. Yeah, it's um, diff it's a little different though. Uh, I, I feel you know when you look at the movement um, back in the '70s, and you're young, and maybe you, maybe you're too young, but I think it was a it, it it had a different feel than it does today. I would say that today women are kind of not really paying too much attention to what's happening with the men, and they're just stepping into these new roles and, and doing it more um, on their own. Yeah, well, I think that what you're saying is there's a lot of people have blazed this trail. And, you know, I'm 33. There was never a point in my life, in my childhood, where I questioned whether I could do something and anything. I just, I never, I never thought like that. And I know that that's an incredible accomplishment on the personal level for, for women. Now, that's not the case for all women. Right. You know, and um, access to a job like the one I had at Blank Rome is an incredible thing. 
equity once you get there is a different different thing. Yeah. And the pipeline for me was created a long time ago by, you know, my mother's generation and grandmother's generation. But that again is not the case in all for all groups, all ethnic groups, racial groups and um, you know, economics at levels of economic uh, so I I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. But yes, you're right, there's a lot of attention being paid to what it means to be successful. And changing the question is a big part of that, I think. Yeah. And why we're making this film now and why we really believe that now's the right time to be making it is because of that. It's, is that, you know, again, that turning the lens to what is power, what does it mean to have power and affect change in a city, and it means different things for men and women throughout history. But again, it's, there's... It's not right to think that women didn't make history, too. Right. You know did. what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And um, But there was so much going on quietly, right? And I think it's wonderful that we can bring these stories to the forefront. And, and you're so right that, you know, there have been women, you know, blazing trails, and but we just didn't know about it. Yeah, and I, you know, that's a whole other conversation, yeah. maybe, <laughs> feeling like you don't need to claim credit or um, you're happy to give credit away and 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 I also think I've been thinking about this a lot what makes a person even think they're making history you have to really you have to think that way in order or be told you are doing something to to understand the the significance of what you're doing and um, you know whether that's a factor in in why women weren't necessarily throughout time recording what they were doing or, you know, I, I don't know. But but I think one of the most important things I learned at Blank Rome was that I you can't really be what you can't see. So when there's not a woman or, for, you know, a black man or a black woman or a Latino woman who's made it and whose life you look at and you think, you know, like that's, I can, I see myself. I see myself in this leadership position and making it work the way I want to do it. And, you know, without that example, it's really hard to, to strive to be that, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. for a little girl to see a female president yeah. is really important. It is, it is. Um, you mentioned um, definition of success. And I'm wondering, and people are thinking about it um, a little differently today. What is your definition of success? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that, I think for me, success means doing something I care about and putting my time and energy into a mission or a job or a relationship that I I feel makes me feel happy and motivates me and makes me feel like I'm contributing. I I think work or relationships that deplete us or this big, loud, red flag, red mm-hmm. signal that yeah. there's something wrong. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, don't you can't do only, it. you know, if you feel only depleted and never energized by what you're doing, yeah. there's a problem. And um, so in that sense, I guess, success. Now, on a broad level, what is success? For, for I think everyone has a different definition. Mm-hmm. And to try to squeeze people into boxes, you know, whether they're earning a certain amount of money or they've gotten a political position I, I don't know. I think that's limiting. You know, in, in my mind, my dad lost for mayor three times and governor once. I think he's a really successful person. Yeah, right. So 
I, I don't know. I think. Yeah, I think it's. I think you're right. I think it's more of a personal. Everyone has their own personal definition. Um, one of the things I was curious about is if, if there are other topics you're looking forward to uh, producing uh, with the company other than women shaping Philadelphia. So the history-making productions so far has been focused exclusively on historical documentaries about the city. And, you know, I grew up here. I've come back. Um, I love Philadelphia, but I am interested in, in other places and the history of other places. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I could see someday thinking bigger. And, and as far as topics that I'm interested in, um, you know, there's lots. I love documentaries. I yeah. think they're just the most amazing way to learn. And um, we've talked about doing a documentary about uh, Latino Philadelphia. That would be really interesting to me. I would love to learn more about that community through through a film. Um, so, you know, for now, I'm pretty focused on women. I'm, I'm yeah. in it, and yeah. I'd love to see us successfully uh, successfully um, produce that series. And the truth is, we're hoping that we're going to be a model. A national model so that other cities will see what we've done and um, take the idea and make one of their own right. and improve on what we've done you know right. that would just be the ultimate I think success story because yeah every every city could tell this story yeah that was my next question actually do you foresee this you know happening in other cities and and because what I think would be really interesting is to compare the stories city to city yeah and it, I think you know, from our perspective, it makes sense to start in Philadelphia. This is the birthplace of the nation, mm-hmm. and where um, we're going to learn, hopefully through our series, why experiences for women here at the, in the early um, in the early times of this country were a little different or notable. And I think you're right. Ex- comparing the experiences of of women and of men who are, were promoting women's issues, yes. and promoting women's right. leadership. Um, will probably be different regionally, and, and that would be a really interesting thing to look at. Yeah. I wonder, have you uncovered any stories where there have been men that were kind of right there beside the particular woman that you're spotlighting? Yes. Um, and, you know, that's something we want to showcase as well. You know, unbalanced history is unbalanced history, and that's not something we want to replicate. So we're going to try to tell the story of men and women working together. And again, sorry to bring us back to her, but the best example that I've seen so far is Lucretia Mott and her husband, James Mott. James Mott, um, he reminds me a lot of my own husband. I'm not comparing myself to Lucretia by any means, (laughs) but um, just, you know, an incredibly supportive husband who... um, saw in his wife the the talent that she had. She was a speaker. She traveled all over the world speaking. And James Mott himself was very successful, and he was a merchant. Lucretia convinced him that he needed to change uh, and, and not use fabric that was coming from the South, that was um, coming from from slaves, uh, slave farms. And, you know, at an economic hit, he, he did. He changed the way he was doing his business. And he supported what she was doing and came with her. Um, so in Seneca Falls in 1848, Lucretia Mott was one of the main speakers. But they weren't sure at the time whether they were ready for a woman to lead a meeting, even though it was a oh. meeting of <laughs> about women's, women's rights and suffrage. Um, important to note, about 500 people went to Seneca Falls, and probably 200 to 300 were men. And who led that meeting when they realized they weren't, you know, are we ready for a woman? James Mott led the meeting. Oh my so gosh. just an amazing couple and just such a, he, he obviously to me is just 
um, the amazing example of supportive, supportive spouse. Yeah, there are men out there doing, you know, who, who see the strength and the value oh, yes. in women. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, for the, we just have a few minutes left. For the listeners who might be interested in um, learning more about the project, getting in touch with you, hopefully donating to the project, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out? We have a website that I would love for you to visit. The front page of the uh, website has our trailer, which will just give you a feel for the kinds of film we're making. But um, it's womenaffilly.com, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. There's a way to get in touch with us through the website. There's a way to donate to the project through the website. And there's also an interactive component. We're asking people to tell us the stories of the women, of their families, their neighborhoods, and their their community organizations. Um, So you can fill in uh, a box on our website, tell us a short story, and it appears on a Facebook page. And we read them. And it's a way of uncovering stories. People don't realize, you know, yes, your mom made history, too. Your grandmother was part of history, too. Right. you know, there aren't history books about women's history in Philadelphia, so we're writing one, and yeah. we want everyone to, to be part of it. You know what, that's what's so wonderful about social media. I am sure that those, by having people do that, they're going to uncover their own stories. And, you know, with the numbers of people that you can reach, I would bet that, you know, a story might come out of all of those when they do some digging um, that are worth perhaps being part of the project. Yeah, absolutely, and it's really moving how how people write about and want to remember their parent or um, grandparent or a teacher. There have been a lot of people who have um, have told us about a, a teacher, a nun, who really influenced them and who was a real leader and who stepped out ahead. Um, and, yeah, those stories are really moving and, yes, might be worthy of a documentary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm so excited for the film, and I can't wait um, to watch the progress and see it when it finally comes out, and I'm, I'm so grateful to you for doing it. So thank you so much for sharing your story today, Lauren. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. really appreciate that. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out on my website at womentowatch.net, and that's women2watch.net. Thanks, everyone. Make it a great week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. 
That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.